And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Beud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You be seated as we pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, which is exactly what we need to hear today. So may your voice, and indeed I'd say not my own, be heard this morning, and not just heard with our ears, but by your spirit in our hearts and minds. In Christ's name, amen. So I made up how to say half those names. If you were looking for me for the correct pronunciation, you'll have to look elsewhere, but at least I got through it. You've, uh, when, I, when I grew up, movies started with this, uh, they kind of, the credits that started, that started the movie, right? So kind of the, they began with the credits. And sometimes the, the people making the movie would try and do something interesting while they rolled the credits through, but it was a really boring way to start a movie. I'm glad they figured that out in most movies today, just kind of splatter one or two things up there and then get right to the movie. Sometimes, uh, I don't know if this ever happened to you, uh, but somebody recommends this great book to you. I say it's a fantastic book. I remember getting a book from one of my mentors, a pastor who had pastored me in university. He bought it for me. He said, James, I'm buying this for you, but you have to read it. That's the condition. He said, it's a great, great book. And so I got it, and I started to read it. And in the first about paragraph or two, I was just totally lost. It was kind of a dud of a start to a book. Some people think of Matthew's gospel much the same way. This exciting story of, of Jesus, the Christ. And Matthew, you're going to start with a genealogy? That's a way to, that's a, everyone's going to lose interest real fast that way. Boring. In fact, I was actually telling somebody that I was preaching on these 17 verses in the first sermon in Matthew, and they thought I was joking. A whole sermon on a bunch of names? It's not just a list of names. Certainly the ancients understood the value of a genealogy. It wasn't uncommon for a king to, uh, to, to list his genealogy to show that he was uh, the rightful heir of the throne. But with this genealogy, there's even more going on than that. This is actually a bold and deliberate start to his gospel. It's a very carefully calculated move by Matthew. And I can just say, I am excited to preach this genealogy because of what Matthew is doing in these verses. It's not just, like I said, it's not just a random list of names or even in kind of a, a nice list of names of all of Jesus' ancestors. There's something very deliberate going on here. And we can see that because Matthew gives us these very obvious hints that there's something more going on. Did you notice the symmetry of 14, 14, and 14? 
Well, in order to achieve that symmetry, Matthew actually had to leave out names in the genealogy. So, for instance, in verse 8, he goes right from Joram and calls him the father of Uzziah, which, according to the Old Testament, skips three generations. Now, Matthew knew his Old Testament as we dig into the book. We'll, we'll figure out. He knew his Old Testament very well. So that was a deliberate move on his part to leave out those names. And, and it's actually not dishonest because that word, the father of, um, in the Hebrew, like in the English, can, can mean more than just like your literal father. It just can mean one's ancestor. So we sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them. You know, there's this idea that um, anyone in that ancestral tree is father. And so it's not, it's not inaccurate what he's doing here. But it's clear that he's trying to get at a certain symmetry. And he leaves us another hint when he starts in verse 1 with the son of David, the son of Abraham, two key links in this genealogy that he's going to emphasize. And then verse 17, we see that he's doing something very intentional, right? Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He's doing something. Something deliberate's going on. Do you know, it's not the only lineage of Jesus given. Luke gives one in chapter 3 of his gospel. And even by comparing those two, you can see that Matthew is doing something very intentional. Now, it's worth commenting here, um, in case this question comes up in your mind, um, they, Luke, and, uh, Luke and Matthew actually trace the genealogy through one through Heli, or Heli, or however you would say it, I'll say Heli, and the other through Jacob. It looks like what's going on here, there's two genealogies, they don't add up. Um, it, it might be a question for you, it wouldn't have been for the Jews of his day. You see, um, in those days, if somebody, if there was a dad who didn't have sons, he would need to, a Jew would need to uh, acquire a son somehow. Adopt a son, bring a son in somehow. So there's two different possibilities for this. One is if a man dies childless. Let's say it's Joseph's dad, um, and he, he Healy, and he and he dies without any sons. The Old Testament sets up a provision where one of his close kin can then marry the wife and produce offspring for his name. And so in that sense, both. Jacob and Heli are Joseph's rightful father. Or it could be, and the other way this can work, is that if a father has no sons, his daughter's husband he can adopt as his son and can produce a name for himself that way. And so that could be the case that Heli is Mary's sonless father and Joseph then becomes his adopted son. Either way, be appropriate. So that's why there's a difference between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's. All right? Got that question cleared up? Maybe. But let's get back to what I was trying to focus at by bringing out Luke and Matthew. Luke gives a list of names, but Matthew so clearly orders them and gives us this symmetry and this structure around these three main, uh, main sections. So we can tell, even compared to Luke, Matthew is doing something very intentional. What is going on? 
What's going on? What is he trying to get at? Well, remember last week, we learned who Matthew was written to. We learned that there was this new church that had just been formed around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was growing quickly, yet it was still small. And it was surrounded by the sea of opposition, right? Particularly amongst the religious leaders who were doing everything they could to stamp out this message. After all, they had rejected Jesus. They were the ones, in large part, who had tried to have, or had succeeded in having Jesus killed. They were the ones who paid off the guards so that they would spread a false report about Jesus' resurrection. And now they were going about doing whatever they could to stop this message of Jesus and this church from succeeding, throwing some in prison, labeling it a fringe cult group. And Matthew writes to this group of believers, trying to give them some foundations to say, how are you going to stand in the face of this opposition and not only stand and and withstand the opposition, but continue the growth and the zeal for the gospel that can be spreading across the Roman Empire and beyond. And in that context, Matthew decides to begin here with the identity of Jesus Christ. He says to this little group of Christians, what we need to understand, what you need to understand, what we need to understand is who Jesus is is. And the reason he structured it the way that he has is to make it very memorable for us so it's easy for us to lock in to exactly what he's trying to say. Sure, Matthew is showing that, that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne, that he has the lineage to be the king that everyone's claiming he is, but he's doing so much more. And I want to draw out the two main things that he is doing in this genealogy. And I think that by looking at these two main things, that we will have an understanding of the identity of Jesus that is so much richer and fuller for having gone through these opening 17 verses. First, the genealogy shows that Christ is the culmination Of the Old Testament. He's the culmination of the Old Testament. You noticed how he grouped his genealogy into three equal sections. I've made that point over and over now. So in verse 1, he mentions two of those links son of David, son of Abraham. In verse 17, he talks about Abraham, David, and the deportation to, to Babylon, or the exile, as we often call it. These were three very crucial moments in the development of Israel's history. And I I think that Matthew's trying to draw our minds to what was going on in those three key moments. What starts each of these three movements? Abraham starts the first, David starts the second, the exile starts the third. And so let's just look a little bit and do some digging here with me. Let's look at Abraham. Turn to page 8 in the Pew Bible, which is Genesis 12. Matthew's saying, look, if you want to understand Jesus, 
you got to understand Abraham, you got to understand David, and you got to understand the exile if you want to understand Jesus. So page 8, Genesis 12, 1-3. I want to set it up before I read it. God creates the world. Everything's good. In fact, very good. Then Adam takes the fruit and eats. And a curse breaks out. And from that point on in Genesis, you see kind of mankind under the blight of sin and the judgment of God. So you see Cain killing Abel. You see the flood destroying everything except for Noah and his family. You see the Tower of Babel. We can be like God. And God dividing them into the nations of the earth. Judgment after judgment, curse after curse. But then he calls Abram and it says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And this is key. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see why the story of Israel is so important? Abraham who becomes the 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 true father of Israel, it's because through him, not curse to all people, Adam's sin brought the curse to all people. It brought death and darkness and sin to all people. But through Abraham and his family, blessings are going to come to all the families of the earth. That's why we care as we, as we trace the story of Israel through the Old Testament. It's why we care so much about what's going on. It's because it's through this line that most of us in this room are Gentiles. We represent the families of the earth. Through that line, we can receive some sort of blessing. The curse can be undone. And instead of being under the judgment of God, we can be under the blessing of God somehow through this man and his seed. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Let's do David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, page 259. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Page 259, I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 11. 2 Samuel 7, in the middle of verse 11. God says this to David. David, again, a little bit of background. David has uh, been chosen by God to be the king of his people. And through him, he has actually been able to conquer this promised land. Peace is coming to the people and, and prosperity is coming to the people. They're being established. Things are going well. He is a righteous king. He has, he has issues, which we'll see, which are come up later in 2 Samuel. But nonetheless, he is a man after God's own heart, 
trying to help the people follow the law. He's a good, righteous king. And then God says this to him in the middle of verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in some ways, Solomon fulfills that. David's son builds a temple. He has to be disciplined of God. But his throne can't be forever. He died, just like every other man dies. And eventually, when we get to the exile, there is no Davidic king on the throne at all. What do we mean about a forever king and a forever kingdom who will come from the line of David and rule like David? God makes a promise, a covenant to David that says, one from your line is going to be established as a forever king with no end to his good kingdom. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it's no mistake then that when the prophets come along and prophesy to Israel, the hope they keep holding out, what they keep pointing forward to is a branch from David. I will raise up the booth of David. I will raise up David, the righteous. They keep echoing this covenant, this Davidic covenant in their promise of hope. One is coming who will restore and make things right. Well, if you know Israel's history, just 400 years after David's reign, 300 to 400 years after David's reign, their sin has become so prevalent that God's judgment must meet, come to the point where he must take them out of the promised land and send them into exile. And the prophets over and over are talking about this exile that's coming. But when they prophesy the exile, they consistently prophesy the end of the exile too. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, he states specifically that the end of the exile will come 70 years after the exile began. And there's all these pictures of what things will be like when the exile is over. Let's look at just one sample in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Now you're really hoping that I'll give the page number. 790, page 790, Zephaniah, we're almost to Matthew, 790, 
Zephaniah talks about they're going to be judged and in exile. But then it prophesies about the end of the exile in chapter 3. Actually, it does throughout, but I'll be reading in chapter 3, the last few verses of the book, 14 through 20. So listen to what it says is going to happen when the exile is drawn to a close, when they return from exile. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time I will gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. Now, in a sense, some of that was fulfilled very clearly at the end of the seven years, 70 years when they returned from exile. Eventually, Babylon and Assyria were fallen. Those enemies were taken care of. God did gather his people. There was joy in celebrating in that. But if you read the stories of the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of, of, of uh, Jerusalem, you realize there's something more. These prophecies aren't, don't meet their total fulfillment in this little gathering we have that's still kind of under the thumb of a foreigner, a foreign ruler. There must come a time when Yahweh will be in our midst in a unique way. God with us in a unique way. When all of our desires and our longings are met. And all the promises of God meet their fulfillment, their yes. And what does Matthew do? Son of David, or son of Abraham, son of David. And what's the third link he puts in that chain? The exile. He doesn't bring us to the return from exile as the next point. He brings us to Christ as the next point. Do you see what Matthew did in this genealogy? He just wove together for us the whole story of the Old Testament. There's a promise, a blessing coming to all the families of the earth. And then we learn it's going to come through one who's like righteous like David and from David's line. 
And then we learn that the judgment that comes upon Israel for her sin that ultimately will be undone is still awaiting the one who will undo it and establish a true, gracious, perfect kingdom with God in the midst and rejoicing all around. And Matthew says, he's here. Jesus is here. You see how back in Matthew, he calls him the Christ. Verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then verse 16, of whom Jesus is born, who is called Christ. And then verse 17, from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's actually a Greek word just transliterated for us. That means they didn't translate it. They just made it sound like the Greek word Christos. The word means, if we were to translate it, anointed. And the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. So in your mind, you can say Messiah equals Christ equals anointed. Now, who were the anointed ones in the Old Testament? Who are the ones that received the anointment? There were three people who would be anointed to their office. The prophets were, the priests were, and most notably, the kings were. And so to call Jesus the anointed one is to, to convey this idea that he is the truly anointed one. In a sense, he fills these offices. But more so, there had been developing through the, the message of the Old Testament and the hope that it was emerging from the Old Testament, this hope for an anointed one, a Messiah or Messiah who would come and fulfill all of this and undo Adam's curse that it was a blight on all humanity and reign and establish a good kingdom. And Matthew says, Jesus is this Christ. When you hear Jesus Christ, think title. Think maybe King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, fulfillment of the Old Testament Jesus. That's what he is. That's who he is. So little church on mission, foundation we need is to understand this identity of Christ as the one who takes these varying streams in the Old Testament and brings hope and life to the world. How good is that for our faith? But even think about sharing Jesus and the message of Jesus with others. I have something more to say than Jesus is the bandage that put my life back together. That's significant. That's important. But I have something more to say than that. You can't dismiss my Jesus as just kind of a placebo genie who has made my sad life happy because now I have some hope. He's not just a personal me Jesus. 
can take them through and show them what the Old Testament was saying is the problem with the world and how that solution started to become hinted at in various ways in the Old Testament, how Christ comes and fulfills all of that and is truly the one who is the Christ, the anointed one to bring these message of hope, the kingdom of hope to the world. That is our Jesus. And those religious leaders with their they're saying, oh, no, Christianity is just this fringe religion. It's not what the Old Testament teaches. Matthew says, no, it's they who have it wrong. Jesus is the capstone of the Old Testament. But I'm not done with the genealogy. There's a second major theme that courses through this genealogy. A genealogy is a, is, a, is a genre. It's a style of writing. Like we have today poetry or fable or essay or novel. Genealogy was actually an accepted form, literary form in that day. And there was a way of communicating through genealogy. And one of the best ways you can figure out what the author's trying to say in a genealogy is when he, he breaks from his pattern. Right? So there's a pattern of genealogy, a rhythm that kind of sets in. The father, the father of, the father of, the father of. But then there's these breaks where something happens different. And that's where you notice something more is going on. And you get a hint at what's going on. So, for example, you're reading through this genealogy and your head's starting to, to kind of, you know, dip a little bit because you're hearing the father, the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. Then you notice that in verse 2, it doesn't just say the father of Judah, it adds this little phrase, and his brothers. Back to it, the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, until you get to verse 11, Jeconiah, and, here's the break, and his brothers. What's going on? Why is he highlighting the brothers at that time? Well, you have it at the outset of the founding of the nation of Israel, kind of this time of great hope for all the nations, right after Abraham. And then the other time he puts it, it's kind of when that hopes are dashed. It's like he's saying all the nation's hopes were dashed. It wasn't just Jeconiah. It was his brothers as well, the deportation to Babylon. Expectations are high expectations come crashing down, and then Jesus. And at the end of Matthew, right before the Great Commission, which we've kind of looked at as these theme verses, Jesus says, gather my brothers that I might give them this message in 28.10. The brothers, the brothers, my brothers. And the hope again spreads to the world. But there's something more obvious in, in the breaks in this genealogy, the, the, the breaks from the, the pattern. Five different times a woman is mentioned. Now, legally, that was very unexpected because legally you didn't trace a genealogy and, and, and the women didn't factor in to the legal uh, tracing of the genealogy. But occasionally, if there was a really prominent woman that was important and famous and, and you know, would kind of lend credibility to who you were, you might put her in there. 
But that's not the types of women that Matthew includes in his genealogy. He's doing something very strategic and very deliberate. These five women all have one thing in common. They all would have made the Pharisees and their religion very uneasy. Start getting the heebie-jeebies around these women the Pharisees do. Start with Tamar. We hear Tamar's story in Genesis 38. She marries one of Judah's sons, and her son dies, leaving her childless. Another son marries her, leaves her childless, and she's realizing there's not going to be any Judah's lines ending here. She knows that this is the line through whom the Messiah is going to come. So she does something very unusual, scandalous. She dresses herself as a prostitute, and she seduces Judah. And that's where Perez was born. That would make the Pharisees cringe. They don't like that kind of stuff. But if Tamar makes the Pharisees cringe, how much more Rahab, the next one mentioned in the genealogy in verse 5, Rahab didn't just dressed like a prostitute. That was her profession. And she wasn't, she was a Gentile through and through. She lived in the city of Jericho. But when she heard the report of Yahweh and who he was, she actually turned her heart from the gods of her people and turned to worship Yahweh, left behind her way of life and rescued these spies that had come to spy on Jericho. And then she came to the Jews and became a worshiper of Yahweh and a follower of their religion. The Pharisees aren't real comfortable with the, uh, the Pharisees aren't real comfortable with prostitutes coming into the kingdom. And then, after that, there's Ruth, verse 5. Ruth was a Moabite. Now, it, the, the surrounding nations of Israel were never looked upon with great favor, but the Moabites were kind of the lowest of the low. In fact, there was explicit laws written about them being cut off from, from the assembly of the people of God. She wasn't just a Moabite. An Israelite had married her, and her husband died, leaving her childless, and her mother-in-law's husband died, leaving her child, or, uh, heirless, and the other son had died too. So that you had this kind of really desperate situation. A Pharisee would have looked and said, they got what they deserved. An Israelite marrying one of those unclean Moabites? Yeah, no wonder all the men died and there were no heirs. But Ruth, too, left behind her gods and followed Yahweh. And when she comes to Israel, one of the righteous men, Boaz, looks at her and says, she's one of the few women of noble character. And he marries her. Pharisees don't like that. Then verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, 
It's not even named. The wife of Uriah. Why is she not named? I think it's to draw attention to the fact of what was going on there. Uriah's wife was Bathsheba, the one with whom David committed adultery and then to cover up his sin had Uriah murdered. Not only that, Uriah was a Hittite, which means he wasn't a Jew. And so even by calling him the wife of Uriah, it's linking her, though she was probably an Israelite, linking her with this Gentile and linking her with David's sin and having him killed. You start messing with the Pharisees' notions of what's righteous and pleasing to God, and you start talking about David himself and what happened around Bathsheba. Now they're going to get real uncomfortable. I don't want to grapple with that part of Scripture. And of course, in verse 16, Mary. Mary, who as a young maiden, while engaged, became pregnant, not even by the man with whom she was engaged. Oh, this new religion, the Pharisees say, around Jesus. Do you want to know a little bit about his? The situation surrounding his birth? The hussy, Mary. An illegitimate child, they might say. This is not the kind of people that the Pharisees found attractive. But what did God do? He said from the beginning, all the way back with Judah and Tamar, I'm going to weave these types of stories right into the genealogy of the one who would come to be the savior of the world, the savior of saint and sinner, the savior of male and female, Jew and Greek, all right in the genealogy. So there's no mistaking that this was my heart from the very beginning. And Matthew draws our attention to it. Now, if we start to think like the Pharisees, if we start to think that Jesus is a religion or, or following Jesus is, is for those who are middle class and have their life put together, who know how to be respectable, clean, who are um, respected in the community, who would be nice additions to Maple Avenue Baptist Church, this genealogy should blow that apart. It's like a stick of dynamite in. It's gone. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for the needy. Jesus came for the people who understand that we don't have our lives together. Jesus came for me. And I don't have my life together apart from his grace. I know what my flesh is capable of. And if you sit here today and you feel like, man, I don't fit in at Maple Avenue Baptist Church. Everybody's got these nice shirts and looks like they have their lives perfectly together and have that nice smile on. I don't fit in here. Matthew's genealogy has something to say about that. It says, you're part of Jesus' genealogy. This is part of God's heart from the beginning. I'm shouting. I'm excited. We need to get this for our own hearts. 
and for the ethos of our church and what drives us. Why are we going to go to that person down the street who's going through a hard time? Why are we going to help that single mom? Why are we going to see that person in need and go and meet them and try and bring the message of hope of Jesus Christ to them? It's because it's part of God's heart as we see in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here today and you haven't embraced Jesus as your king, you haven't acknowledged who he is. Hear what Matthew's doing in this genealogy and the hope he's giving and what he's telling you about this king, this Christ. And come. The spirit of God is pulling your heart, telling you, come and embrace the goodness of this king. Or maybe you have your life together. Maybe you don't need a savior. I don't need a crutch like those Christians needed. I've got it together myself. I can handle it myself. Careful. So the Pharisees thought. So the religious leaders of that day thought. You might, you might be irreligious, agnostic, even atheist. I've got it together. Yep. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for those who knew they needed a doctor. I pray that someday by God's grace, you'll be able to see your need for Jesus like I know my need for Jesus. One of the religious leaders would later write, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am the foremost. Was Paul, who also wrote, In Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all united in Christ. So Matthew's saying right here, in this genealogy, do you see what Matthew's doing? He's saying we must understand the identity of Jesus. The capstone of the Old Testament. This Jesus must grip our hearts. The offspring of Tamar. And Rahab. And Ruth. And Uriah. Or the wife of Uriah. Not to mention some really bad scoundrels like Ahaz or even Hezekiah who who became proud late in his life or David or Abraham. I mean, you just go on and on, right? This is our Savior's lineage. He came into the world to save sinners. Let us allow these things to grip our hearts. Take root 
if you can just remember. He wrote it in such a memorable way, right? 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. I can remember that. I can remember Abraham, David, exile, and how Christ relates to those things. I can remember that, right? That's good foundation for me. I can remember the breaks in the genealogy, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uriah. I can remember those things so that I can remember who the Savior is so that it can fuel my fire and also allow me to reach out into this hostile world that is rejecting Jesus because they think they have it all together. Let's pray. Father, what a start Matthew gave us to his gospel. You gave us to Matthew's gospel. Thank you for the way you wove together that genealogy of Jesus and the way Matthew draws that out for us so we can see who our Savior is. By your grace, Lord, get this into our hearts. May our minds and hearts be gripped by Jesus the Christ, King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, who came in the world to save sinners. 